0: Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Each week, Jake and I will endeavor to have a grace-infused, cosmopolitan conversation about the lectionary texts for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the same old song of God's redeeming grace to what feels like an ever-changing and confusing world. And we'll do it all in 25 minutes or less. Yet again, once more into the breach, my friend Jacob Smith. This is yet another week in epiphany or eureka as we have named it contemporary contextualization of liturgical reality going on right here in same old song Jake how are you what's going on
1: oh you know good i mean you know the sixth sunday of epiphany this uh, particular year um Because of the lunar calendar, Epiphany just seems to kind of go on. But that's okay, because we need to constantly be reminded that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so, uh, we dive right into um, the sixth Sunday of Epiphany. And our readings are from um, Deuteronomy, and then we have 1 Corinthians and Matthew. So, um, we're out of the prophets for a brief moment, and we come to Deuteronomy to um, basically uh, the Mosaic Covenant...
0: It was a professor I had in seminary, Dick Ray, Dr. Richard Ray, and he was a great old Presbyterian, the uh, Prince of the Pulpit. He was, he was an older guy. He was teaching leadership classes, and he says, you know, well, he, was a, he was from Tennessee. So like, one day some guys were in the church that said they wanted to learn some things about the Bible. So uh, I've been mean, about the sharpest theologian in, in, the, in, the, in, in the group just about New John 3.16. So I said, look, we're gonna, you're going to come over to my house once a week at 7 a.m. for breakfast, you fellows. And we're going to start with the basics. Numbers and Deuteronomy. Said that it was the most practical thing they ever did. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, was, he was great. He, was, uh, he used to say, uh, that, uh, he, had, he showed us his wedding manual. He said, I have a mandatory mother of the bride meeting. Because she's got to know who's in charge. <laughs>
1: Wait, that's amazing. They should send Gray, that to me. He was, Some of my he was, biggest uh, problems in life are mothers of the bride and wedding planners. There you go. I and mean, it's, it's it's these are these are r- ritualistic
0: challenges. So Deuteronomy, Jake, where are you, are you going to are you going to be bringing the word from Deuteronomy? This, I think uh, you
1: know one of the things that's very important to remember is is that you know, so Moses is speaking here, but he is uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord. And um And this is a a very powerful word. It's a see. I have set before you today, life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live. And become numerous in the land, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering and possess. But if your heart turns away, and you do not hear, but are led astray, to bow down to other gods and serve them, then I declare to you that you shall perish. This is a very important, um, you know. I think when most people think about God and how He communicates today, uh, they think about Him. I know none of no, none of our listeners have ever had this problem, but when I was in junior high, I had my first girlfriend, and um, and I never quite you started knew, early. Yeah, I did start early, but I never quite knew what she wanted or what to expect. I would get these notes, you know. Do you want to sit with me at lunch? Yes or no? And you know, well. Yeah, maybe, and then I would, and that didn't make her happy because that she wanted to like be with her friends or whatever. But most people That's kind shocking, of have, have this view you. of God that it's um, how
0: could a meal with you not be? pleasing. I've eaten with you. I I, I love it. It's one, you're one of my favorite people to share a meal with. How well, could she not have been thrilled with that?
1: Well, you know, she was 14, but she wasn't clear. And I think this is kind of one of the problems in our culture and uh, in our understanding of God today is that we think that God doesn't say anything. And we're constantly wondering if I do this. Um, and this was the problem in the pagan world as well that surrounded Israel is that their gods didn't speak. It was all based on what they see. And, and, uh, and so, uh, but God here through Moses is clearly laying out the expectations of life and death, Um, and that is obey the law, and you will live and transgress it, and you will transgress it, and you will surely die. And uh, there's this powerful thing here, but if your heart turns away... And you do not hear me. You know this is the thing, and one of the themes of the epiphany this time around, as we move later into the cycle, is the epiphany. What we're we're looking at when it comes to the to the human is that life isn't so much about just simply what you do that matters. Life for the Christian isn't so much about what you do, but it's all about the intention. The intention, and so what Moses is getting at here is the importance of of a uh, heart transformation, and as we'll see, that like you know, on our own, uh, none of us uh, choose life. Um, but the good news of the gospel is is that life in Jesus Christ actually ultimately chooses you.
0: Amen to that, my friend. And you know, if it's really interesting, I think this sometimes scholars talk about the Deuteromistic. Tradition in the Old Testament, and basically what they're talking about is this sort of theological stratum that 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 says to Israel, "Hey, you, cho- you know, cho- this is the perennial choice that the people of God have." And I think I might have read this before, but if I have, I'm reading it again. So we're already repeating ourselves. Well, sometimes Reinhold things Niebuhr, are good, so good they just got to be repeated. Reinhold Niebuhr in Leaves from the Notebook of a Tame Cynic said it took him about six months into his first parish, he, he was preaching the same sermon every week, just from different texts. But um, this is from Peter Lightheart's book on Kings, but he's he's thinking of how one reads a book like Kings in light of Deuteronomy and this, and this sort of life or death choice that, that's framed there. So the book of Kings is prophetic in a more particular sense as well. According to Gowan, who was actually a teacher at Pittsburgh Seminary, where I attended, according to Gowan, the prophet's, to ancient Israel did not preach a legalistic message of moral reformation, but an evangelical message of faith in the God who raises the dead. From the first days of the human race in Eden, the curse threatened against sin is dying, you shall die. And the same curse hangs over Israel after Yahweh cut covenant with it at Sinai. The message of the prophets is not Israel has sinned, therefore Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is Israel has sinned, therefore Israel must die, and its only hope is to entrust itself To a God who will give it new life on the far side of death. Or even Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead, cling to the God who raises the dead. This is precisely the prophetic message of Kings, which systematically dismantles Israel's confidence in everything but the omnipotent mercy and patience of God.
1: That's very powerful. You know, and that applies to us today, especially in the collect for the day. A collect is a um, is a prayer that is prayer, prayed and it represents the collective hope of the congregation. And uh, the collect for the 6th Sunday of Epiphany says, "O oh God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers, and because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you, give us the grace" that in keeping your commandments we may please you in both will and deed through Jesus Christ our Lord. It really is It, 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 it really is. on our own we can do nothing good, and we need to die daily uh, to realize that you have been chosen for something good. You have been chosen for the good works, as St. Paul says in Ephesians, to, uh, you have been chosen to walk in those good works which he's prepared for you to walk in.
0: Amen to that, Two,
1: First Corinthians. We're in chapter 3 this week, right? That's right. Chapter 3, verses 3, uh, 1 through 9. And um, here in this point, and one of the big problems of the Corinthian church, is, uh, as one uh, can find out, is that division was a big part of it. Um, and uh, um who was in who was out was a big part of the Corinthian church whether you were baptized by apollos or or paul or peter or who whoever you know um it was all about uh name recognition and where you went and uh and division was a big part of it here and uh and this is one of the things that um um that saint paul is addressing here in 1 corinthians chapter 3
0: yeah and <clears throat> this is uh, a a Perennial problem, right? It, it, it's not just something that happened in the first century; it happens in the twenty first century, where it seems like Christians are forever capable and and inclined to major on the minors, so to speak, mm. and have a tough time recognizing the oneness that's created by God and Christ.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a big thing, and I think we actually see it going on in our uh, our. Um, political culture today in that uh, the church, you know, the church has spent so much time trying to be relevant that it's actually made itself irrelevant. And uh, and so right now it is clamoring all over the place to lead, you know, and I've seen articles all over Facebook and all over social media about, you know, how is the church going to lead in these days in, in America, you know, and um, are we going to lead, you know, once again in social causes and, um, and defending refugees? And are we we going to lead once again in... um in realms of um, culture battles and, uh, you know, bringing about a, a pure and holy America. And uh, I think what uh, St. Paul would say to that uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 is that is all nonsense. Uh, one of the interesting things is, is that when Paul writes, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you came to believe? You know, in Roman culture, uh, nobody wanted to be a servant. Everybody wanted to climb the ladder and be something important and uh, things never change uh, but really um the the job of the apostle the job of the preacher of the gospel is to remember that we are servants of Christ Jesus and um you know and you see this all over too i mean it's almost like we want to place our name on everything you know i go all over new york the the coke brothers uh, this uh, you know the um the morgan that the uh, all of this stuff and uh, all has names on it trying to be recognized as something big And what Paul reminds uh, this congregation is that uh, they are simply servants and that the church itself is the garden uh, where God has already placed his name. There's no room for your name. There's no room for anything about you when God has stamped and placed his name there and given you his grace because without him, you're dead.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, too, I think. Peter Lighthart has written some essays, and I think he has a book now about the future of Protestantism. He wrote this, this essay a couple of years ago, I think, called The End of Protestantism, which was very controversial. And in it, he, he talks about we don't need Protestantism, we need a reformational Catholicism. And in it, he says this Some Protestants don't view Roman Catholics as Christians and won't acknowledge the Roman Catholic Church as a true church. A reformational Catholic regards Catholics as brothers and regrets the need to modify that brotherhood as separated. To a reformational Catholic, it's blindingly obvious that there's a billion-member Church of Jesus Christ centered in Rome. Because it regards the Roman Catholic Church as barely Christian, Protestantism leaves Roman Catholicism to its own devices. They had a pedophilia scandal, and they have a controversial pope. A reformational Catholic recognizes that the turmoil in the Roman Catholic Church is turmoil in his own family.
1: Mm. Well, I think that ultimately, um, Protestant or Catholic— What we need to realize is that we are, especially the preacher, uh, that we are all God's servants and that we are working together in the proclamation of this gospel. And God working through us, we are working in uh, our congregations are God's field and our congregations are actually God's building. Uh, none of them belong to us, kind of like what Jesus talked about, you are salt and light. And, you know, nobody ever goes to a restaurant to talk about, you know, hey, man, I can't wait to try the salt. You know, that's really, they got some amazing salt there. No, um, what salt does is salt highlights the main dish and Jesus is the main dish. Uh, Jesus is, this is God's field and God's building and we are simply servants working together.
0: Yeah. And people say, you know, like, well, I don't want to be in a church with people that Pray to icons, or people that speak in tongues, or people that uh, believe in the authority of the Pope. You're already in a church with them, yeah, by virtue of your baptism and union with Christ. You're you're already in a church with people that do things and believe things that make you uncomfortable and, <laughs> pro- and probably uh, squirm a bit. But that's it's not it's not about uh, whether or not you, you want you would be in a church. You are by nature of union with Christ.
1: Mark Galley actually talked a little bit about that at a Mockingbird conference. Um, uh, the conference he headlined and he talked to, and at the time there was the guy, the,
0: the Quran, like
1: the Karan burning, uh, pastor down in Florida. And, uh, and uh there was another pastor who was giving away AK forty sevens and uh, to support, you know, gun rights and things like that. And uh and uh Mark Galley said something really interesting. He said, you know, it's real you know, we have a tendency to say, oh, those those aren't those guys are jerks. They're 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 not Christians, those guys are jerks. And he was like, wrong. They are they are Christians and they are our jerks. And uh, you know, to recognize that that, that flows through, but nonetheless. Um, it is all God's field and all God's building. And uh, for the preacher, I think that's something you really want to emphasize if you're taking on the Corinthian text.
0: All God's creators got a place in the choir. Some sing low, some sing higher, some sing out loud the telephone wire. And some just clap their hands or pause or anything you got now.
1: And that takes us to the gospel. Oh my gosh! Well, this is uh, this is um, this is um, this is high octane, like um, just gold standard preaching text. If you're going to preach law and gospel, and uh, and really to lay out that distinction and what's going on here, is, uh, is Matthew five. I mean, you just it's it's really good. It is. It is. And, and again, it's it's it gets back to what you were
0: talking about earlier that that the gospel looks at the level of the heart and level of intention, that's, so it's not so you can I mean Nietzsche says that you know the problem with Christian charity is it often wants to be rewarded mm. <laughs> and well, we're that's often, charity we're, in general yeah we're often we're often you know on our best moments like as Christians we repent not just of our vices but our virtues because mm. we realize our, our our best efforts and moments are always laden with ambiguity because of the broken nature of the human condition. Yeah,
1: this is, it's very good what's going on right here. Um, So, kind of going back to the Deuteronomy passage, uh, the issue that Jesus is getting at is the heart. He is elevating um, the law beyond action, So many people think that it's about what we do, and he is bringing it to the level of the heart, your intention. What's going on um, with your thoughts? What's going on with your dreams? He is elevating the law to its highest pitch, as Paul all says, so that it might crush you, and as the psalmist says, you might seek to find where your help comes from. And so Jesus begins by saying, and what he's doing here is very powerful. He says, you know, you've heard that it was said, and that's very specific from those those of ancient times, because in those days, rabbis, uh, when they were teaching, they would typically address and reference other rabbis, much like we do here, you know, with Peter Lightheart, uh, N.T. Wright, Paul's All, um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, you know, we're referencing other sources. Um, but Jesus, he says, you know, you've heard that it was said in those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And there was all these like loopholes around murder and what it meant. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But then he says, and he drops the mic, and this would have in every Everybody up, hearing this when he says, But I say to you. He's not, but I've heard it, and let me tell you, let me reference someone else. Jesus is in, in this teaching when he says, but I say to you, he is making himself an authority. He's making himself the ultimate authority, and this is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, the crowd say that he teaches as one who had his own authority. So he's not referencing anything, and he's speaking as one who has authority to elevate our understanding of the law from beyond simply action, to the very intention,
0: yeah. There's, and this is back to the ecumenical hour on Saint Wilson. Last week we talked about Benedict's book on Jesus, and in the section in that in the first volume of his Jesus books, in the section on the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about a book by Jacob Neusner, called a Jewish scholar, called "A Rabbi Talks with Jesus." And in this book, Neusner, who's a believing Jew and rabbi, and has lots of Catholic and Protestant colleagues and ecumenical relationships, he imagines himself as a first century Jew, as a rabbinical student, actually engaging Jesus. And in this book, he t- Benedict says, he takes his place among the crowds of Jesus' disciples on the Mount in Galilee. He listens to Jesus and compares his words with those of the Old Testament, with the rabbinic traditions as set down in the Mishnah. He listens, he compares, and he speaks with Jesus himself. He is touched by the greatness and the purity of what is said, and yet at the same time, he's troubled by the ultimate incompatibility that he finds at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Then he says that he, after listening to Jesus for the whole day, he goes and sits with his own rabbi. And he says in his interior dialogue, Neusner has just spent the whole day following Jesus and now he retires for prayer and Torah study with Jews of a certain town in order to discuss with the rabbi of that place. Once again, he is thinking in terms of contemporaneity contemporaneity, contemporaneity across the millennia, all that he has heard. The rabbi cites from the Babylonian Talmud. Rabbi Simla expounded 613 commandments were given to Moses, 365 negative ones corresponding to the number of days of the solar year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to the parts of man's body. David came and reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to six. Isaiah came, again came and reduced them to two. Habakkuk further came and based them on one, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Neusner then continues his book with the following dialogue. So the master says, is this what the sage Jesus had to say? And Neusner says, not exactly, but close. What did he leave out? Nothing. Then what did he add? Himself. This is the central point where the believing Jew Neusner experiences alarm at Jesus' message. And this is the central reason why he does not wish to follow Jesus, but remains with the eternal Israel, the centrality of Jesus' I, in his message, which gives everything a new direction. At this point, Neusner cites as evidence of this addition, Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. If you would be perfect, go sell all you have and come follow me. Perfection, the state of being holy as God is holy, as demanded by Torah, now consists in following Jesus.
1: Yeah, because without this, I mean, we're all screwed. I mean, uh, Jesus just really brings this to um, to a whole new level. And uh, this ultimately becomes the enabling word that um, allows your yes to be yes and your no to be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. Uh, When it comes to the law of God, there is no compromise. Um, It is either totally yes or it is totally no. And unfortunately on our own, it is simply uh, only no until Jesus fills up the law with himself and in his love on our behalf. So that as St. Paul says, every every answer from God is a yes.
0: Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law. And he fulfills it, yeah, by... As Bart says, the gospel stories are the story of the judged judged in our place. Amen. And it's in that generous judgment that we can rest. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, go to our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard... Please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review, hopefully a favorable one. It helps so much. And maybe share it with a friend via social media. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions, feel free to email me at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.